The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 496. If you want to have a high-performing organization, there is no getting around the fact that you are going to be letting people go. Because even the very, very best people at hiring, hire at maybe 75%. There is no shortage of great business leaders, and there is also no shortage of news articles and TED Talks touting the very specific traits that make them all great. They're passionate, they're creative, they're disruptors. The list goes on and on, and with it, so does the idea that great leaders have to be inherently different than everyday workers. But David Dodson, veteran entrepreneur, board member, and investor, turns that assumption on its head. As he explains that great leaders aren't superheroes with magic DNA, they all follow a simple set of steps that are within anyone's ability to acquire. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. I'm here to help you find more and better books and walk away with the key insights and main ideas from those books straight from the authors themselves. My guest today is indeed David Dodson. He's written a book called The Manager's Handbook, Five Simple Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush the Competition. I'll be asking David to share what his decades of experience as a CEO has taught him about hiring the best people and how to best onboard those people, better ways to give performance feedback in such a way that it actually has an impact, what he's learned over the years about what it takes to be intentional with your time, and plenty more. Over 100 people in my Read to Lead community have received a free copy of a book you'll be hearing more about in just a couple of weeks called Leadership is Overrated. They're reading that book, and in fact, this Thursday, we're meeting to discuss that book with the authors themselves, Kyle Bucket and Chris Meffert. And whether or not you're one of those 100 plus to receive a copy of Chris and Kyle's book, I want to invite you to join us for the discussion of the book because I think there's so much for all of us to learn. It's taking place this Thursday, October 12th, 2023 at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And there's two ways you can be sent the link to join us. One is to join my mailing list. Go to readtoleadpodcast.com and put your name and email address in the form at the upper right of the page. And you'll start getting emails from me about this event and others. Or you can jump right in to the Read to Lead community. It's free for two weeks then just $9 a month after that. Technically, you could sign up, come to Thursday's event, and then cancel if you really wanted to. But I think after you try it for a couple of weeks, you'll really like it. You can find out more about that at jeffbrown.me. So readtoleadpodcast.com to join the mailing list, jeffbrown.me to try a Read to Lead Plus membership. And we'll see you Thursday for our live discussion about leadership is overrated with the authors Kyle Bucket and Chris Mefford. Hope to see you there. David Dodson is a successful serial entrepreneur, a board member of more than 40 companies, and an active investor in over 100 businesses. 
He's on the faculty of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and a recent recipient of the Distinguished Teaching Award. His new book is called The Manager's Handbook, Five Simple Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush Your Competition. Well, David, welcome. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this book, and uh, I want to be among the first to congratulate you on this being a Wall Street Journal and uh, I believe USA Today bestseller. Uh, that's got to feel pretty good, right? It did. I, I I have to admit, I kind of enjoyed when I got that email from the publisher. <laughs> now, now, how long has that been? How long have you known that? Uh, that it hit the bestseller list by the third week. Oh, that's that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want to start off by asking you about uh, someone you mentioned in the acknowledgments. Tell me about Wendy. <laughs> oh, so Wendy is my uh, adoring wife, meaning I adore her. Uh, <laughs> And I mentioned her, as you know, Jeff, in the acknowledgments, because she had to suffer through months and months of me saying, it's done. The book is finalized. And then I'm just going to read it next week. And then I go, oh, I got to rewrite this chapter. Or I don't like this. So she uh, uh, she kept saying, I know you're not done. I know you're not done. But she was very patient. And I didn't intend to write a book. It just sort of evolved. And uh, she was quite patient during the process. And she knows I really love the subject matter, Jeff, and I and I really love to write. So yeah. she sort of rolled my eyes and said, you know what? He's doing what he loves and what he feels like he was meant to do. Well, I think some of the best books I've read come out of people who didn't intend to write books. Interesting. <laughs> Well, among the five uh, simple steps or, or skills that you lay out in the book, one of the first or the first is all around building a team. And I would love to sit at the feet of someone who is as knowledgeable as you and learn about what you've learned about hiring people and, and how to best onboard people, because I think what you've learned can help a lot. How that came about, Jeff, is that when I was, when I was working on the subject matter for the manager's handbook, what I was doing is I was observing that just some people were just so much better at getting things done than others. <laughs> and that was because when I looked at Sam Walton and Steve Jobs in particular, what I realized was that their superpower was actually not the ability to see around corners and predict the future, but they were very, very good at implementation. Mm. So take Sam Walton, for example, you know, when he got started, he was surrounded by Target, JCPenney and Kmart. And he annihilated them. He didn't invent the he didn't invent the department stores. Steve Jobs is the very same. You know, people rightfully give him credit for being a visionary, but his visionary was really around his ability to get things. And he didn't invent the mouse. He didn't invent the personal computer. He didn't invent the graphic user face. What he did is he was able to implement it. And Steve Jobs in particular, his best superpower was his ability to surround himself with great people. Mm. Best evidence of that is look what happened after he passed away. Nothing. Mm. Apple just kept going because he he did not have the ego that prevented him from surrounding himself with great people, which sort of leads me to your your question. When I was looking at these people and I and uh, that were so much better at getting things done. Mm. I saw that the number one thing they did is they surrounded themselves with fantastic people. And by the way, that in, in my course at Stanford, I would often hear guests say, you know, some a student would raise their hand and they would say, you know, what's the most important thing? And almost always among the list was, you know, building a good team. Mm -hmm. The problem was that the students would leave the classroom and say, okay, well, I'm supposed to build a team, but I don't actually really know how. So there was, it was aspirational. So when I was working on the manager's handbook, I broke it down into individual steps. And I realized that the people that were great at building teams didn't have some x-ray vision 
as to what makes a great person. They actually had a process on how to build a team. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, fantastic author and wrote Talking with Strangers. He tells a story that was really, uh, really had an impression on me where Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of Britain, was trying to assess this, basically this new guy on the political field uh, who was the chancellor of Germany. So he flies to Germany and he meets him and he comes back and he tells not just Britain, but the whole world, mm-hmm. we have nothing to worry about. And he references how Hitler shook his hand and how he was gracious. And Neville Chamberlain announced to the world that this is a man that we could trust. And he was basing this on gut feel. By the way, many other people made the same mistake about Adolf Hitler. One person who didn't was Winston Churchill. Interestingly enough, Winston Churchill never met Adolf Hitler because Winston Churchill didn't rely on gut feel because he didn't have any basis for gut feel. He was looking at at, at hardcore evidence. So when people hire, a lot of times they say, you know, I rely on gut feel, how I feel. What they're really doing is they're cutting corners and they're being lazy Mm. and they're letting all these biases come in. The best people that hire run a process. So for example, building a team, first thing I talk about is here is a process that is proven on how to hire. It's a little bit more work and it's more tedious, but it works. And uh, when I was running a company that was in seven countries, we had seven country managers. And we were one for seven. I instituted these hiring processes and we went seven for seven. Mm. So they work. Mm. So so the manager's handbook in terms of leading the team starts with, here's how you hire somebody step by step by step. Here's how you onboard someone step by step by step. So that somebody, when they read the chapter, this is the book that I wish someone had handed me when I was first getting started. When they read the chapter, they don't, they're not inspired. (laughs) actually have it like a to-do list. They go, okay, I can do this seven steps. I can do this. Yeah. Uh, The Churchill story was one of my favorite of the book. I'm glad you you chose to to share that one. Um, Something that used to always make me uncomfortable, regardless of which side of the desk I found myself on, was the whole performance review Mm -hmm. process. I haven't had to do one of those in a long time, having been self-employed. Uh, for a while, but but how how do we give performance feedback, David, in a way that's that's actually able to have an impact? Well, it begins with recognizing that the the primary reason why we don't give good performance feedback is we're taking care of ourselves. Mm. It's an act of self indulgence, you know. And we say, well, I don't want to be unkind to the person. We're, we just want to be liked, <laughs> or we don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. But that's not fair to the other person. And if you look at sort of the athletic field, which I think is a is a reasonable analogy, can you imagine a coach of a high performing team who was like, ah, I don't really want to give my players feedback. I don't want them up. I want to upset them. I want them to like me. That, that's not how you win games. It's also not how people like just to reference. But I talk about lots of leaders. But can you imagine Steve Jobs or, or Sam Walton saying, ah, I don't really want to give people good feedback. So it begins with recognizing what is the source of you not wanting to give good feedback. The second piece of it, which I talk about the book, is Kim Scott's work on radical candor, which most of us, there, there's this sort of two by two matrix. And most people are in the in the category of ruinous empathy, meaning that we, you know, ruinous is that we're hurting their careers uh, because we're pretending to empathize. But what we're really doing is we're, again, we're taking care of ourselves. So radical candor is where you say, I care deeply about this person. As a result, I'm going to give them good feedback. So now you have that kind of basis for, okay, this is this is the pathology on why I don't give good feedback. This is this is what's important to them, you know, source of radical candor. But again, I felt like my readers would go, okay, well, that's pretty good, but I'm going to, but they would basically snap back to where they were before because it's so convenient to not give feedback. So that's why I laid out six steps. And it goes expectation, measurement, feedback, obstacle support, and alignment. And that might seem a little bit clumsy, 
But actually, as I lay out the book and I give examples of how you might give feedback for someone who is late getting the financials out or whatever, you realize it actually flows really easily. So what we have now is we have like a paint by numbers approach to have you give how you give feedback. So at the end, you 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 if you follow those six steps, in the end, you have almost guaranteed that you've given this person good feedback, which means that you've not just maximized the chance that they succeed in the business or in your organization. By the way, this applies whether you're a high school principal or you're running a division at General Motors or you're an entrepreneur, but also maximizes the chances that they excel. And that's what you're really giving feedback for is you want people to excel. Speaking of which, you had some some great advice on coaching underperformers. Mm-hmm. Let's assume, for example, that we've got someone who's, whose performance isn't sustainable and we're starting to call into question whether or not to keep them. What would you do to make that, that determination? When you are giving feedback, principally your feedback should be given to the people who are Bs, who could be As, or your superstars. Mm-hmm. Again, to go back to the sports analogy, a good coach spends most of their time with their very, very best players. However, we all are going to be in situations where we're, we have someone who, what I'm calling an underperformer, and I really struggled, Jeff, actually, with what the right term was because I want to be respectful of the person, but also you know illustrate the point. But so we're going to use we, we, we use underperformer if you can. What that means is, is that their performance is such that their job is at risk. That's a serious, serious matter for them. And so what, what you can't do is you can't, you know, the, the, the risk of being a, a ruinous empathy and not being radically candid means that they might lose their job. So this becomes very serious. And so I take the principles of the prior chapter, which is how you give feedback. And I say, now you've, you're dealing with someone who is, we're going to call an underperformer. And what do you do differently? Well, for example, you have to tell them that their job is at risk. You're not being fair to them otherwise. And you have to do it in writing because there can be no misunderstanding that their job is at risk. And then you go through the the six steps of how how you give uh, performance feedback. And then we talk about things, for example, like the setup to fail syndrome, which was uh, demonstrated. uh, I think it was uh, two professors in Europe demonstrated that the setup to fail syndrome is that, Jeff, let's say that I were to give you feedback that I said your job is at risk and there's ways to word it in a way that's crystal clear, but is kind. And by the way, me telling you your job is at risk is, is the ultimate act of kindness to you. You need to know that. But then afterwards, the setup to fail syndrome is that we get in this cycle where you're feeling insecure. I'm checking in on you. The more I check in on you, the less secure you feel. You're not playing your best game. And in fact, you could have succeeded and you didn't. So the setup to fail syndrome, I take the, I take the syndrome and I step it and I, I break it down into several steps that you need to make sure that you say to the person. So for example, Jeff, I believe that you can succeed. If I didn't, we'd be having a different kind of conversation. That's one. Another would be, it's very important for you to know that the whole organization doesn't, you know, is unaware that your job is at risk because that's going to, that's going to reduce the chances that you can succeed. So anyway, the set, so I walked through that by the end of the chapter, you've got, again, it's like a paint by numbers approach to how to deal with underperformers and why it's important beyond just taking care of the underperformer is there's nothing more satisfying from a human relations standpoint to take someone who's struggling and help them through that. And then they become a successful employee. And two thirds of the people that I put on performance reviews or performance improvement plans, which is now I call development improvement plans, succeeded and ended up thriving in the organization. As we walk through that process with someone, occasionally we're going to have folks who whose performance just isn't sustainable long-term. And, and, and we've concluded that they're not coachable. I know you've experienced that firsthand as well. How do you let somebody go in that kind way 
that you're mm-hmm. talking about with, with regard to feedback? It begins with understanding something that my friend and colleague at Stanford, Joel Peterson, taught me early on. And Joel used to run the largest real estate empire in the world and then went on to become a founding investor and chairman of JetBlue, among many other things. His resume is actually quite quite lengthy. Had him on the show, yeah. You had him on the show? Yeah. Terrific person and, and an important mentor in my life. And one of the one of the many, many things that Joel taught me was that if you want to have a high-performing organization, there is no getting around the fact that you are going to be letting people go. Mm-hmm. Because even the very, very best people at hiring, hire at maybe 75%. And also, even if you made a good hire, the organization changes and the needs of the organizations change. And I have a I have a quote that's that it, I quote Joel at the end of the chapter on letting people go. So first recognizing that you are, if you want a high performing organization, you're going to have to do it. It's a yucky part of your job, but you got to do it if you want to have a high performing organization. Then the second thing is the process at which you go about letting someone go. And it principally is about being very, very prepared with all the, all the answers to the questions that they have. And I talk about, you know, preparation is compassion. What do you do with your, this may seem very sort of pedestrian, but it matters to the other person. What's going to go on with my laptop? What do I say to everybody else? What's my severance? Uh, You know, I've seen people terminate somebody and, and they say, well, what do you think would be fair for severance? Are you kidding me? You're going to this person who's having perhaps the most traumatic and difficult day of their professional life. And you're asking them to negotiate on their severance. So having all that preparation in place. And the second is that that is not the time to give them a performance review. That The purpose of the meeting is to go over the terms of their separation. If in fact, later they want to talk about, okay, well, like what really want, I want to do a debrief. You do that in a separate meeting because they're in no mindset for that. And so again, it's like a step-by-step process on how to let someone go. And you have to be able to, you have to be prepared to do it. And if they push for that information now, you've got to stick to your guns and really stress that that needs to happen later. Yeah. And and Jeff, that happens. And so I actually spell out in the, in the book, the manager's handbook, exactly kind of word for word, mm-hmm. what to say that works. Yeah. And then at the end of the chapter, again, to make it, re- by the way, at the end of every chapter, as you know, there's, I, I summarize the chapter in notes, about one page of notes. Here are the seven things to remember. So you read the chapter and then maybe it's three months later and you're going to have to let somebody go. You don't have to reread the chapter again. Just go to that one page and look at those seven notes. You go, okay, I got it. I'm ready to go with it. And then in the end of the chapter, I also include, you know, here's a model termination agreement, for example, so that, you know, it's, it's really, I called it the manager's handbook because that's really what it is intended to be as a handbook for somebody. Well, I can't think of a better name for the book because it is exactly that. It's it, it is a indeed a handbook, and I love that the, the way you've structured each of those chapters and and how you come back to sort of summarizing everything at the end too. As you said, make it easy to come back to and use as an actual tool. It's something you are going to reference again and again and again. And I love too, David, that you included a chapter related to productivity um, mm-hmm. and, and how to be intentional with how we spend our time. Talk about some of the tips you share in chapter eight with regard to activity versus progress. Yeah. I love that. I love that expression that activity is not progress. It started with, you know, as I was doing this review of why some people are so much better at getting things done Mm. and I was right in the middle of it. And again, I wasn't, as we talked about earlier, Jeff, I wasn't intending to write a book. I was having coffee with a friend of mine, Tom Staggs, who at the time was the CEO of Disney. So he had about 250,000 people in his organization. And we're meeting outside my office at Stanford, a beautiful sunny day for a cup of coffee. And I'm three or four minutes late. And there's Tom sitting there having a cup of coffee. He's not on his email or whatever. He's just kind of like thoughtfully enjoying the day. And 
I said, Tom, like, how do you do it? I mean, you know, you got a quarter of a million people in six different continents working for you and you're calm as a cucumber. And here I am, I'm running late and I'm worried about it. And he talked to me first about the importance of having a good team. But then he he basically kind of took me out to the woodshed about how important it is to be a good custodian of my time. And I went back and looked at the other great leaders and said they were all good custodians of their time. Okay. So again, I could just say that and people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're going to go back to what they're doing before. So I had to go back and I had to study the habits of people who were really, really good at managing their time. And I started with a friend of mine, Michael Porter, did this study of 27 high-performing CEOs. And he, if you can imagine this, Jeff, he studied them in 15 minute increments. So he had 60,000 hours of data on how they spend their time. And they were ruthless about how they spent their time. But ruthless doesn't mean that they were unfair to other people. It meant that they were just very disciplined about it. But here was the other thing that, that, that really stunned me is they weren't using any fancy apps and controls, you know, and tools and stuff. They just had very simple habits and practices that they did that allowed them to have control over their time. So what I did is I pulled out, everybody was a little bit different. Okay. But I pulled out what I thought was sort of a harmonization of the best practices and just laid it out for them. And, you know, of course it begins, as you know, from reading the book, it begins with planning out your day. So I talk about here's an easy way to plan out your day. You can do it on, uh, you can do it on Microsoft Word. You, you don't. And by the way, it's interesting that that what I observed is all of the apps on how to manage different, you know, your email and your internet and so forth actually ended up in most cases making it more complicated. So what people need to manage their day is a really simple system that also, by the way accepts the fact of our human nature. Um, There's only so much rigor and so much structure that we can tolerate throughout the day. We might do it for a couple of days. It's like the New Year's resolution thing. And then after a few weeks, we'll revert revert back to where we were before. I wanted to lay out a system where I thought, you know what, someone go to, that's actually not that hard to do. I can do that and it's sustainable. So that's what I sort of lay out in the the manager's handbook. I I love that. I use a digital calendar for, Mm -hmm. for meetings and appointments for all the those obvious reasons, but it's sort of a hybrid system. I, I, my main go-to is my analog planner. And, and much like you describe, I, and I think so many people miss this. Many of us are familiar with the concept of budgeting our, our money and, and spending it on paper first so we can tell it where to go instead of wondering where it went and, and how useful it is when we do that with our time, when we spend it on paper first. When I look at my week, I see the whole week mapped out. Now, it's it's an mm-hmm. ideal that may not be reached. I understand that. But without first identifying the ideal, I'll never have a chance of, of coming close. Yeah. And, and imagine, imagine that like the frenetic David Dodson, who was going down to meet with Tom Staggs <laughs> and Tom's demeanor, Tom's mindset, because his day was in control, mm-hmm. he could think about creative things. He could ideate. He could problem solve because he had that capacity in his head that was freed up because his day was all thought through. It was planned. He was completely in control where I was like, oh, I don't know. Am I going to get to my email and so forth? And once I started adopting those practices, first of all, I went to bed happy and content. Mm. Second is I was more pleasant to be around (laughs) and I enjoyed my work better. And then of course, Jeff, no surprise. I got way more work done throughout the day. <laughs> Even got a book done. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, somewhat connected to that, meetings continue to be a part of the day that many of us dread. And I, I think you even say in your book uh, have gotten worse since COVID. What have you learned over the years, David, about making them more meaningful and, and more useful? 
Yeah. So let's start with a an unsurprising but troubling statistic that we just have right in front, which is Bain & Company found that the average manager spends 23 hours a week in meetings. And even worse, that 50% of them self-report <laughs> that they're either ineffective or very ineffective. Mm. So that means that we are willingly wasting half of our work week, week after week after week. And there's this kind of like, well, you know, it's just the way meetings are. Well, Jeff Bezos was the best example. And he was really my starting point for meetings because Jeff Bezos, and of course, look at what he did, what he accomplished. Jeff Bezos's attitude was those meetings are critical in two respects. One is I am consuming the most important, precious resource my organization has, which is my manager's time. You you, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't spend people's time as a driver or the warehouse willy nilly, especially you don't want to spend your manager's time. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is we have to make good decisions. And if we can make decisions that are just a little bit better than our competition Mm. in a little bit less time, we're going to win on the playing field. And the next thing he he realized is that it's not it's not sufficient for me. I'm saying if me, Jeff Bezos, to run good meetings, we need to do it throughout our whole system. So he insists on a certain way. He's not obviously the CEO anymore, but when he was there, he insisted on a certain way that meetings were run. So with that starting point, Jeff, then I looked at other great leaders, okay, like uh, Bill Gates and so forth, the people who did accomplish so many things in their in, in their professional life. And I realized that across the board, they were ruthless in a positive way about how meetings were run. Everybody ran the meetings a little bit differently. So in the book, what I did is I tried to take the best practices of these extraordinary leaders and harmonize it into one, again, paint by numbers (laughs) approach to how to run a meeting. Um, and it works. It works. A, the meetings are shorter. People enjoy them more. They're more energized and better decisions come are made out as a result of it. You know, there's a there's a theory that's really important, which is the wisdom of the crowd. And it's how our neurology works in decision making and that properly done the crowd, meaning the five people in the in the meeting, for example, will collectively consistently make better decisions than the wisest single person in the room if, if he or she was left to themselves. Mm. If you want to harness the wisdom of the crowd, you can't just sort of have the leader present the meeting and then t- say what their ideas are and all the underlings kind of are nodding or whatever. You have to actually run a process to pull out the wisdom of the crowd. And that's the kind of thing that, for example, Jeff Bezos did. Mm. And, and as you say in the book, make the meeting in time something not the bottom of the hour or the top of the hour, make it an odd like 20 minutes pass. Or people will just assume there's a reason for that. And the meeting might actually end on time. That's a result. Well, and, and also I, I thought to myself, this is, this is pre the book. What if all of my half hour meetings were 20 minutes mm. and all of my hour long meetings were 40 minutes? Well, it's easy to, it's easy to check because you just go back and look at your calendar. It's, it's yeah. say 70 minutes a day. It's almost impossible to get an hour long meeting on my calendar. Mm. But if you'd have a 40 minute meeting, like you said, that starts at, you know, 10 after and ends at 10 tell, everybody mm-hmm. assumes there's a reason you show up on time, you get right to business, you get done and it frees up 70 minutes a day and you've done nothing other than just shorten your meeting time a little bit. All my podcast interviews are 45 to 50 minutes. None of them are scheduled for a full hour for that, for that same reason. Uh, I want to get to a couple of questions in the few minutes yeah. we have left that aren't directly related to the book. But before I do that, what else from the book? Do you want to make sure we know maybe it's something related to taking advice or the vow to wow concept or anything else that's on your mind? 
I would say two things, Jeff. The, the first thing is that when I was working on the manager's handbook, I realized that five steps is kind of a convenient number and it might look like I was, I was searching for five things. I wasn't. I just wanted to, I just wanted to find out what was driving this, this these leadership um, successes. One that I stumbled upon was, and you reference it, Vow to Wow, which is one of the chapters within the fifth one, which is an obsession with quality. And it was a consistent characteristic of everybody across the board that they were fanatical about quality. Mm. And it kind of begins with this, which would you fear more? Your competitor that had an amazing marketing and sales organization and a darn good product or a competitor that had an amazing product and a darn good sales and marketing department? Mm. Of course, it's the latter. Yeah. And no organization wins, especially in today's day and age where information travels so quickly, no organization can survive if they're not dedicated to quality. So again, okay, well, that's a nice thing to say. Now everybody walks out of the classroom or gets off the, uh, you know, the podcast and go, well, that's fine, but how do I do it? They actually, it's there, it is, it is begins with a mindset, but then just like hiring, it's Mm. followed with particular tactics. So I take everything from Intuit, which is a remarkable company that, you know, TurboTax and QuickBooks and so forth, they have dominated their product category Mm. for decades. How do they deserve to do that? Well, it is, they have particular techniques on why they always stay ahead of the competition in terms of the quality of their product. But then I looked at a really prosaic company like Safelite Autoglass. Why are they so successful year after year after year? And, and, and each of those companies had particular techniques. So that would be one. And then the second one would be, it happened after I wrote the book and I was uh, driving with a friend of mine who runs a pretty big real estate organization throughout the United States, Jeremy Scalar. And he said, what, what, what companies um, do all these five things? And I'm embarrassed to say, Jeff, that I had always thought about this in the context of you know, the leader or a particular manager or high school principal. And I paused. And of course, I had answers to that. But what I realized is that the real superpower of these people is not that they ran good meetings or that they were good at hiring or that they adhered to quality standards, but that they pushed that through to the organization. And I realized that that the book is not to be read by the CEO. It's mm-hmm. to be read by the management team because if you because that's when you transform the organization. That's when you go. If the CEO reads, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to say that every 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 secret is captured in the book. But if the CEO read the book, the manager's handbook, they personally would improve their performance a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if the CEO pushes those those skills throughout the organization, then it's transformative. And that was something that I, I stumbled upon after the book was written. Yeah, and now, thanks to you, I had the Safe Light Auto Glass Repair jingle stuck in my head. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, hey, tell me about some books that have been impactful to you over the course of your career. What, what stands out as ones that maybe you recommend often? One that I love is a cartoon book that summarizes Michael Porter's book on competitive strategy. And he, they collaborated together on it and you can read it in about 15 minutes. It's, it's, it's wonderfully laid out and it lays out the concepts that are in his much longer book in about, you know, 15 colorful minutes. So that's a book that I love. Another book that I love is, uh, Rational Irrationality and Pinkin. And it, it talks about how our mind works. And I'm fascinated with all of the ways that our mind tricks us into making poor decisions. And I was having a conversation yesterday about this with somebody. I was saying, and I know this might sound a little woo-woo, but I, I, I firmly, firmly believe this is the case. 
is that if you look at the history of our species, our uh, Homo sapiens, you know, we've been around in some form or another for a very long time, but only a fraction of that time, like tiny, tiny fraction of that time, we've been dealing with things like farming, for example, where you plant a seed and then you have to wait a while and then the corn comes up. Okay. But before we were just chasing down gazelles and running away from (laughs) saber tooth tigers. Right. So, so our cognitive development is not suited for how our society is structured today. And, and rational irrationality is a great example of how, if you understand that you can make better investment decisions, you can make better hiring decisions. You can make better decisions about quality. You can make better decisions about how you spend your day because you realize that the reason why I'm wasting all this time on the internet is actually because I'm effectively running away from a saber tooth tiger you know, the, the, the immediate satisfaction or I'm chasing a gazelle instead of planting a seed so that I have something meaningful to harvest. And so I get that. I, I thought that that book did a very wonderful job of laying that out. David, I tend to believe that authors, but in particular, authors who are also professors are among our society's best information capturers and doers with that information. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Uh, so don't mm-hmm. prove me wrong. <laughs> but I would love to know uh, some of your practices for personal knowledge management, capturing the things you want to remember, actually doing something with the things that you capture, creating with those things. What would you? What what advice would you give? Well, keep in mind that my the first chunk of my career was as a CEO and an entrepreneur. So I, I went back to academia long after I had had a, a, a business career. So I was able to sort of marry all of those prior practices with the opportunity to just sort of study and observe other people and work with students and so forth. So it's been a, it's been a wonderful kind of marriage of, uh, of trades, if you will. So one thing that I do that is very effective for me is even though I was, I was knocking all the apps that you can buy for time management, one that I have, which I use follow up then, but there's other uh, boomerang and there's other uh, apps that you basically resend you an email down the road. So for example, I'll read an article and one popped up today. It was an article in the Wall Street Journal that I had read in, in the opinion section months and months earlier. And I'll read it and I'll say, you know, this is actually meaningful. This, this mm. has an impact on my life. Mm. I, I need to reread this from time to time. So I'll say, okay, pop it back to me in six months. Uh, yesterday, there was an article in the Atlantic that I read. I've read it probably two or three times. And I wanted to be mindful of that. And it had to do with, you know, happiness, an article by Brooks that, mm. that guides me a little bit. I said, you know what, going into the fall, I've got a busy fall. So I said, I said it might my system to, to pop that back in two months. I want to reread it in two months. So that work, that works effectively for me. And then another is that, again, and this is really, uh, really in the, almost in the boring category, but I have found that organizing your, your laptop or your computer system can be just a dumping ground mm-hmm. of anything and everything. And just as you go deleting and organizing things in a way that you can find things quickly has allowed me to reference important things, not only quickly, but also I know I can find it quickly. Oh, I'll go grab that and I'll take a look at that before I have that phone call, or I'll go take a look at that before I go back in that meeting and see what the person said a month ago. I love that idea of resurfacing, uh, in particular, useful emails. I use an app called Spark that allows you to yep, snooze sure. emails and does exactly the same thing you're talking about there. Yeah. 
Well, the book, again, is called The Manager's Handbook, Five Simple Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush Your Competition. Uh, His name is David Dodson, and he's missing the beginning of an important meeting to wrap up this conversation. So, David, thank you for for sticking with us long enough to, to really dive in deeply to this. I really appreciate you being here. Not at all. I enjoyed talking to you, so I don't mind being a little bit late so you and I could chat. So, thank you. David mentioned a couple of books, one of which he did not mention the title of. That's What is Strategy? An Illustrated Guide to Michael Porter. And again, the other book, Rational Irrationality. I'll link to both of those books on the webpage created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 496 for episode 496. There you can also find David on social media in case you want to connect with him on Twitter or LinkedIn. I guess I should be calling it X now. I keep forgetting that. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you'd be finding out more about Leadership is Overrated in a couple of weeks. That interview is actually next week with Chris Mefford and Kyle Bucket. That's the book my community is meeting about this Thursday to discuss. Many have had a copy of it for the last month, and Chris and Kyle are joining us for that private discussion. Again, you can be a part of that by either being on my mailing list, readleadpodcast.com, or joining the Read to Lead Plus community, or becoming a Read to Lead Plus member inside the Read to Lead community. That's at jeffbrown.me. But again, we'll be welcoming Chris and Kyle to the show next week to discuss leadership is overrated, and I hope you're here for that. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Hope to see you next week for that interview. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read. 